The following message is by a guest speaker of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. So as we think about the, the topic of spiritual thirst, and as we read through uh, John chapter 4, I want to divide the, the message into a few different points. First of all, we're going to talk about the woman's thirst. And we see how Jesus takes this woman through this journey to discover her own thirst. And then secondly, we're going to talk about our thirst. How the lessons that we learn between Jesus' interaction with the woman can apply to us as well and help us to see our own thirst. And finally, we're going to look at Jesus' thirst. And so let's look at our first point, the woman's thirst. And let's start in uh, John chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Now, um, it's a long passage we have today, 30 verses in fact, and so we have a lot of reading to do. But just bear with me because the things that Jesus is doing here are very significant uh, at each step of the way. So let's look at uh, John chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and uh, so Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now, Jesus was traveling from Judea to Galilee, and in between was this area called Samaria. But the Israelites didn't like the Samaritans because the Samaritans over the centuries, they had veered away from God's word. And so they had mixed their religions with the false religions and worshiping false gods along with reading the Bible as well. And they were intermarrying with uh, non-Jews. And so the Jews considered the Samaritans to be impure and unclean. And often, so often when a Jew tried to travel from Judea to Galilee, they would go all the way around Samaria to get to their, their destination. But the quickest way was to go straight through Samaria. So that's, where, that's the way that Jesus went. And so when he was in Samaria, he was sitting by this well, and this woman comes along to draw water. Now, even before she says anything, we get a little glimpse of, of her spiritual thirst. It says that it was about the sixth hour, which in our modern term, terms would be about noon. And so we have to wonder, noon is the hottest part of the day. Now, you may not appreciate heat in Chicago. But in the Middle East, in Israel, heat is a serious thing. And so uh, no one goes out at noon to draw water. No one goes out at noon to do their, their chores outside. They will wait till in, in the early in the morning or late at night when it's cooler in the day. So this woman, most likely, she specifically went at noon to avoid other people. It may be that she had a bad reputation among the other women. And so she didn't want to be at the well when other women were most likely to be there. And so Jesus sees this woman coming to the well, and we, she, we can already see the sense of her spiritual thirst, of this something going on that she's trying to avoid other people, and Jesus does this amazing thing. He talks to her. Now, in those days, normally men did not talk to women, and certainly Jews did not talk to Samaritans, but Je- Jesus not only talked to her, he asked her for a drink. And the amazing thing is that in the Jewish laws, everyone was concerned about religious cleanliness. And so to drink from a jar that is unclean means you yourself become unclean. So to ask this woman 
for her water from her jar was just unheard of. But was Jesus that thirsty that he was so desperate he wanted to have her water? But of course we know that through the book of John, Jesus is not asking for water because he's thirsty. Uh, Even just a couple chapters before this in John chapter 2, we see the incredible miracle when Jesus turned hundreds of gallons of water into wine. Certainly, if Jesus was thirsty, he could have gotten a drink if he wanted to. And so he asked this woman for a drink, not because he was thirsty, not because of his own need, but because of the woman's need. In fact, he was asking her for a drink because he wanted to point out two things in her life. He wanted to help her to understand two main points. First, he wanted her to understand the true spiritual thirst that she had. And so he took her step by step by step in this conversation to help her to see her own true spiritual thirst. And secondly, he wanted her to understand that Jesus himself was the true living water, that only he could satisfy that spiritual thirst. And so again, he goes step by step by step to reveal himself as the true spiritual water. And so I want to go through the the rest of this passage and show how Jesus uh, helps her to understand these two things. And so let's continue in verses 9 and 10. It says, The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Jesus asked her, answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, in Jesus leading this woman to understand her own spiritual thirst, the woman herself tries to resist as much as she can. And so she starts off resisting by insulting Jesus. Essentially, what she's saying here is, look, you Jews, you look down on us Samaritans all the time. You even go all the way around to avoid our territory. And now here that you are and you're thirsty, now, now you want my water to drink. And so she tries insulting Jesus to get him to leave her alone. But this insult doesn't work. And it doesn't drive Jesus away, so she, she next she tries challenging him in verses 11 through 14. It says, the, uh, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water will give him the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so after insulting Jesus, now the woman challenges Jesus. Look, you don't even have anything to draw water with. How can you offer me any type of water, let alone this so, quote-unquote living water? And uh, so Jesus, it, but you see that she, even in this little step, she's, take, she's getting a little closer. She calls, her, she calls Jesus sir which is a little bit of an improvement from the insult that she just gave him. So it's no more like, hey, you, or any just indiscriminate title, but he, she calls him sir. And so um, Jesus responds by offering this living water that she doesn't have to drink, uh, she won't be thirsty again. And so um, she takes that one step closer, and she responds, verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Okay, so she's making progress here, coming closer to understanding her true spiritual thirst. But still we see there's a bit of a, a false motivation here, even in the reasons she, she gives, so that I will not be thirsty and have to come here. She still wants to avoid everyone else. She, the only reason she wants to have this living water 
is so that she can have her own private life and keep her own sins to herself. And so she has false motivations for taking this living water. And so Jesus takes her one step closer in verses 16 through 18. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Here is a woman who is spiritually thirsty, and she's trying to satisfy that thirst with a man. So she marries a man, and she still remains thirsty, so she leaves the man and marries another. And she's still thirsty, so she, she leaves that man and marries another, and another, and another. She, she's married five men, and the man that she lives with now is not even her husband. Now, you can see her spiritual thirst that Jesus pinpoints right away as she's trying to fill it, not with true living water, but with the satisfaction of men. But isn't it interesting here that with all this huge sin that's so clear to Jesus, he only points it out once. He doesn't dwell on it. He doesn't even mention it again. Now, you imagine if you and I were in this conversation, if we were talking to this Samaritan woman, that would be the only thing that we would talk about. We would constantly be harping on this, this fact that she's living with all these men, and that would be our only focus of concentration. But Jesus, he mentions his want only enough for her to understand her own spiritual thirst. And then he goes on. It's like an expert surgeon who has a patient before him and only explains enough that she can understand that she needs the, the medical care that he offers. Only enough until she will submit to his care. And then he goes on and he, he cures the disease. And so Jesus, in his expertise, he doesn't dwell on it, he doesn't judge, he just mentions it until she recognizes her thirst and then she goes on. And so we see how she, she, Jesus has led this woman step by step by step in order to understand her true spiritual thirst. And then he's going to go on to lead her step by step by step to understand that Jesus himself is the the true living water, that he alone can satisfy her thirst. So let's continue in the passage in verses 19 through 20. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. So uh, a little improvement here. Instead of calling him sir, now she calls him a prophet. And, uh, but what she does is she switches the topic to religion. Now, not about her specific religious need, not about her relationship with God, about a general religious topic. It, basically, she's trying to draw attention away from her personal life. Now, Jesus has brought up this topic of her great spiritual need, and so she's trying to hide that need by talking about religion. Now, this was a very controversial religious issue at the time, of the place of worship. The Samaritans had their own temple. They had their own place of worship. They claimed that in Samaria was where they could worship. But the Jews, they claimed the temple was supposed to be in Jerusalem. That's the place to worship. And so Jesus takes this controversial religious topic, and he he runs circles all around it. He says in verses 21 through 24, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. 
Now, a lot of Christians have written, written a lot of commentaries about these verses. And there's all these different theories about what it means to worship in spirit and truth. But honestly, I think that's not really the main point of what Jesus is saying here. So I don't really want to go into that and dwell upon what Jesus means in terms of the type of worship. But I think Jesus' main point for her is not for her to understand what to believe. I think Jesus' main point is for her to understand who to believe in, that he himself is that living water. And so finally, he offers this living water, and she receives it. In verse 25 through 26, it says, The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, Jesus is pursuing the Samaritan woman. He pursues and pursues and pursues. And you may think that, you know, is he just being cruel? We see that he's not judgmental. We see that he's not uh, insulting her. But instead, he takes her insults. He patiently sits with her, talks with her, takes her insults, takes her challenges, takes her diversion of the topics. And he circles all around them to draw her closer and closer to himself. And he does it because he loves her. He loves her, and he knows her more than she knows herself. She doesn't even realize that she's thirsty. And so Jesus has to point out that thirst to her. To her. And she doesn't know where to get that true living water. And so Jesus has to point out that to, him, to her as well. And so out of his love, he reveals these things to her, and she receives that living water, and you can see the difference that it makes in her life. Look at verses 27 to 30. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her jar, water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Now we see the difference in her life. There's a little bit of a hint there in the, the, the literary device of the, the water jar. As even as the Apostle John is reading, writing this passage, this is, the fact that she leaves the water jar is just a little hint that this woman is no longer thirsty. But I think the greater clue, the real proof of it, is the difference in her actions. What does she do as soon as she receives this living water, as soon as she understands who Jesus truly is? She goes to the town. She seeks people out. This is exactly the opposite of what she wanted before. She was trying to avoid people. She didn't want to talk to people. She was ashamed of her own reputation. But now she seeks them out because she has received this living water. She's been filled with the streams of living water so full, so overflowing, that she just has to share it with everyone else. So she no longer cares about her reputation. She no longer cares about what people think of her. And she goes to the town and tells everyone she can see, could this be the Christ? Now, have you ever experienced that kind of change in your life? You know how hard we commit to keeping our life just in order, of protecting ourselves from, from the reputation of what people will think of us, how careful we are so that people don't see the wrong thing, don't hear the wrong thing. Have you ever ex experienced this complete change in your life that you would forget and abandon all your caution and just react and live out of this true living water? Now, in the same way that Jesus loved the Samaritan woman, and even as the true living water changed her life, 
Jesus pursued step by step by step to bring her to that water of life. And Jesus wants to do the same for you. Jesus loves you as well. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows the things that you are thirsting for. And he wants you to set aside all those false waters, to come and see the true living water. In the same way, Jesus loves you, not to judge, not to condemn, but to heal, to restore, and to satisfy by himself the living water. Now, if we learn all these things from the example of the Samaritan woman and understand the woman's thirst and how Jesus ministered to her step by step by step, we can learn how he does that for us too. So our second point today, I want to talk about our thirst. Now, let me ask you this. You may think that, you know, I'm okay. I'm not as bad as this uh, Samaritan woman. Uh, Sure, I have my flaws. I have my sins. I have things that I'm not proud about. But I haven't gone and married five spouses and and lived with someone else on the sixth. I haven't denied Jesus that much. But there's so many ways that we're trying to satisfy ourselves with things that are not true living water. And so let me ask you this. Does Jesus satisfy you? Maybe you believe in Jesus. Maybe you know for a fact that he is your Savior. But does he satisfy you? Is he the thing that gives you peace? Is he the foundation of your life? Is he the thing that that wipes away all your insecurities? Are you still spiritually thirsty? And if you are, how would you even know it? Just like this Samaritan woman, she tried so many ways to hide her spiritual thirst. How would we, need, how would we know ourselves if we had this spiritual thirst? So I wanted to um, look at the example of the Samaritan woman. Even though she had no hope, even though she had no hope of hiding her own spiritual thirst from Jesus, she, she really did try pretty well. She made a good attempt. And so by her example... I want to look at the different strategies that she used um, in hiding her own spiritual thirst and applying that to ourselves, that we also have uh, certain strategies that we use to avoid recognizing our own thirst. And so uh, the first strategy that she used is simply to hide it. She thought by coming out at noontime, she would avoid other people. She wouldn't run into people judging her, or uh, she would try to hide her own reputation So in order to understand our spiritual thirst, we have to recognize what are the things that you and I are trying to hide? What are the things that we only do when no one else is looking? Sometimes it's something that we know is against God's commands. And so in our shame, in our understanding of what God's Word says, we hide it from others so that others won't see, others won't judge us. But sometimes it's just personal preference. Sometimes it's just something that we like. It's not necessarily a sin, but something that we enjoy so much that it satisfies us. We want it to satisfy us. What are the things that when you look forward to being by yourself, when you look forward to that time alone, to just it, it's the kind of motivation, the kind of thinking to, to say that this is one part of my life that belongs to me. I'm going to keep it for myself. I'm not going to share it with anyone else, not even share it with Christ. And I want to hold this to myself. This is the thing that would truly satisfy me. And what are those things that you're trying to hide? What are those things that you only do when you're alone? And we live in a world where, uh, for most people, they would say that what you look on the outside is what's important. As much as we say, as much as we, compl- we, we claim that the inner person is important, our, our reality, our true life, uh, shows that the outside is what really matters. But what's on the inside? What are you trying to do? What are you, what are you trying to hide on the inside? 
that will point to your true spiritual thirst. Now, that was a, uh, one, one strategy that the woman used. Another strategy is to get defensive. And so she was insulting Jesus. She was disrespecting Jesus. She was uh, challenging Jesus just so that he would leave her alone. So think about the times that you get defensive. Think about the sensitive topics in your life. What are the things that you don't like to talk about? Maybe you don't even realize it, but I'm sure that your friends know exactly what those topics are. Your friends know exactly the things that they, they can't talk about in front of you. And it's often your friends who can see more often and more clearly the things that make you defensive. What embarrasses you? What makes you angry? What makes you sensitive? Is it, is it, does it bother you when someone mentions the problems that you have in your family? Does it upset you when you, someone talks about your work? Does it bother you when you don't get the recognition that you think you deserve? Or does it upset you when someone tells you, to what, you can, what you should and shouldn't do with your free time, when, you, when they try to take away your freedom? Maybe there's all these different topics that uh, you get defensive and you get upset about. And when you see those things, it can help point to what your spiritual thirst is. And so from the Samaritan woman, we learned um, often we try to hide it, we try to get defensive, and the third thing, we act religious. And so once Jesus uh, points out this spiritual need, immediately she tries to change the topic to a religious topic. And so a lot of times we do the same thing. When someone is pointing out something in our life that we're not proud of, we want to hide before other people, then often we'll change the topic to a religious topic. Or we'll try to do something religious by serving more in church, by reading our Bible, by praying more, by talking about Christianity. We think that those things can cover over our weaknesses. But really, we're, what we're trying to do is just distracting people from seeing our true spiritual thirst. And not just that, we're distracting ourselves from seeing it as well. Now, if we understand these strategies, hiding our thirst, getting defensive, acting religious, at this point, I want to illustrate it. Um, actually, I've got to mention something about ICC. I love ICC. I really enjoy this church. I know we've still been relatively new here at the church, but from the first moment, from the first Sunday that we visited, I've appreciated the worship, the fellowship, the friendliness. I love the fact that we have food together every Sunday. Um, but one of the things that I really loved, even from the first Sunday, was Pastor Steve's sermons. And within his sermons, particularly the movie illustrations. Now, personally, I love movies. I often preach and mention movies in my own uh, sermons. And so the first Sunday, I remember coming to ICC, and Pastor Steve started talking about a movie. He even put images up on the screen of the movie, and I was like, this is a man after my own heart. (laughs) I'm happy about this church. And so let me just take a few minutes to talk about Spider-Man. And so uh, I know there's many different versions of Spider-Man. Even since 2004, we've had four different movie adaptations. uh, I'm sorry, 2002 of Spider-Man. And hopefully these guys are familiar to you. But for those of you who are kind of an older generation like me, you may recognize these older versions of Spider-Man. And for you young people in the room, if you have no idea what these things are, just just ask your parents later, okay? Okay. but one of my favorite versions of Spider-Man was actually Tobey Maguire. And uh, the, the, the first reboot, I guess, of Spider-Man. And uh, it, within his three movies, Spider-Man 3, I really appreciated that one because it had the most villains. It had four villains, in fact. It had the Sandman, it had Venom, it had the Green Goblin Jr., 
And Spider-Man himself, Peter Parker, became a bad guy um, when he put on the black Spider-Man suit. Now, what happened is there was one night when Peter Parker was out, and um, there was this, uh, this black type of goo. It was a symbiotic alien life that followed Peter Parker home and then covered his whole body uh, to create this black Spider-Man suit. Now, because it's an alien symbiotic life form, it gave him greater powers, greater strength, more, uh, quicker reactions. He was faster. And so it, it, at the beginning, it was great, this black Spider-Man suit. Um, and it helped him to defeat the bad guys. It helped him to, to, get more, uh, to do a better job as Spider-Man. But it not only changed his powers, it changed his character, his personality. He got more impatient. He got more angry. He was more violent. And so there was one point in the movie where, you know, many things happened, and, and Spider-Man, Peter Parker, actually ends up breaking up with the love of his life, Mary Jane. And so he's so upset that Mary Jane dumped him. And so she was working as a singer at this nightclub, and so Peter Parker comes into this nightclub just to show her up. And so she's there as a singer at the nightclub. She's about to do her song, her number. And then just as about she's, she's, she's about to sing, Peter Parker gets up and starts dancing on the tables. He starts swinging on the chandeliers. He starts playing the piano, all these things just to show up Mary Jane. And, you know, the the bouncers at the nightclub, they can't take this, and so they try to throw Peter Parker out. But, of course, he's Spider-Man. They have no chance against him. And so uh, they're struggling with Peter Parker, trying to get him out of the club, and and Mary Jane comes up behind him to try to get him to stop. He doesn't realize it's, it's her behind her, behind him, and so he just swings around and hits her on the face. And the look of shock, the look of horror on his face when he finally realizes not just what he has done, but what he has become. And you can see in the scene the little bit of the black Spider-Man suit poking out of his collar. And sometimes our lives change like that. We don't even realize. We think things are good. Things, things, things will satisfy us, will make us uh, happier in our lives. But they change us. They change our character. I know in times in my own life when I've experienced a lot of stress and when problems have come along that my character feels like it's changing for the worse. Times literally my wife has told me, what happened to you? You're like that dark-suited (laughs) Spider-Man. But because of our spiritual thirst, we try to hide these problems and we don't realize it. We need to to look to each other. We need to, to understand the things we're trying to hide, the things that we get defensive against. The things when we're trying to just act religious to make up for it. In this way, we can see our true spiritual uh, thirst. Now, if we're able to get past these strategies, if we're able to understand our true spiritual thirst, then at that point when you come to Jesus and ask for that true living water, what does he say to you? He says, go, get your husband and come back. Go, get your money and come back. Go and get your comfort. Go and get your pride. Go and get your family, your security, your pleasure, your freedom, all of these things. Go and get them. Come back and lay them at the feet of Jesus, and he will give you that true living water. Now, if we understand more about the Samaritan woman and her her spiritual thirst, and it helps us to understand our thirst, then finally we have to know what to do about it. And that's our third point today, Jesus' thirst. Now, you may ask yourself, you know, what is this talking about, Jesus' thirst? How could Jesus have any sort of spiritual thirst? 
Now, to order, in order to understand that, we have to look at the greater background of the Bible, of the significance of water, uh, water and the, the role of thirst, spiritual thirst. And in fact, water is a strong uh, symbol in the Bible for life. The land that had water in the Old Testament was a land that was fruitful, a land full of life. But the land that didn't have water was a land, uh, it was a place of death in Jesus' ministry also. There were many times when Jesus used water as a symbol of fullness and life that only he could give. And so there's several examples. In fact, in the book of John, where the writer John points out these miracles of Jesus to show, to illustrate that Jesus himself is the true living water. In John chapter 2, for example, Jesus turns water into wine. And wine is a biblical symbol of joy. So as you have imagine, hundreds of gallons of water turned into wine. The overabundance of joy that Jesus is bringing to this wedding at Cana. And so Jesus demonstrated that he, in fact, is the water of joy. In John chapter 9, Jesus healed a man, man who was born blind. And how he did it, he could, have did it done, he could have healed him any way he wanted to. But he took his own saliva and mixed it with the dirt on the ground and made some mud, essentially taking the water from his own body and placing it on the eyes of the blind man, and in that way, healing the man. So in this instance, we see that Jesus is the water of healing. In John chapter 13, Jesus took water and washed the disciples' feet. And we see that this is not just a symbol of humility. It's not just a symbol of, of servanthood. This is a symbol of the cross. This represents what Jesus is about to do uh, when he dies on the cross. That through this washing, the, the disciples will be cleansed of their sins. So in John chapter 13, we see that Jesus is the water of cleansing from our sins. And then John chapter 7, this is probably the most, um, the most dramatic of the, of the symbols of water. In fact, it was the time of the Feast of the Tabernacles. And if you remember the history in the Old Testament, Moses was leading the people of Israel through the desert, wandering in the desert, and they needed water. And so after they had escaped Egypt, they were on their own, they were wandering in this desert, and they, they needed water. And so what, what God instructed Moses to do is bring them before a rock, and Moses took his staff and struck the rock, and out of that rock flowed uh, this water, enough to feed all the people and their animals. And so this Feast of the Tabernacles commemorated that event. And so there was a special ceremony, this water ceremony that the priests would do. They would take a golden pitcher and go to the Pool of Siloam, and they would fill it with pure water, and they would carry it to the temple and pour the water out on, the, on silver bowls, and then pour those bowls out onto the, the altar. And so it symbolized two things. It symbolized that God miraculously provided water from the rock at the time of Moses. And it also symbolized that the true temple, the true spiritual temple, would be the place flowing with living water, as we see in Ezekiel chapter 47. And so in John chapter 7, Jesus takes this moment with all the symbolism of living water, of flowing water, and he declares of himself in John 7, 37 to 38, on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from him. And so Jesus, in the book of John, he's the water of joy. He's the water of healing. He's the water of cleansing. It's from him that streams of living water will flow. And now, with all that symbolism of, of water, if we read through the whole book of John, we understand the significance that Jesus is this living water. How could it be that Jesus was thirsty? We see this at the end of the story. 
that Jesus became thirsty. The Pharisees and the religious leaders, they were getting more and more upset at Jesus. And so finally, they arrested Jesus and put him on trial. He committed no crime. He committed no sin. They had to bring false witnesses in order to condemn him. But eventually, it worked. They nailed him to the cross. And as he was hanging there, dying on the cross, what did he say? In John 19, verse 28, later, knowing that all was now completed and so the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Now, what kind of thirst is this? Jesus is hanging on the cross with nails in his hands, nails in his feet, thorns of, a crown of thorns on his brow. A little bit of thirst would be the least of his problems. He's not saying he's physically thirsty. He's saying he is spiritually thirsty. He's spiritually thirsty, not because of any lack, not because of any sin, but because he's pouring out all of his spiritual water, his living water, and giving it to you. Not just some of it, every last drop. He's pouring out on the cross in order to satisfy your spiritual thirst. He knows that you're thirsty. He knows that every one of us, we try again and again to satisfy that thirst with our own means. And so Jesus, he poured out that spiritual water, every last drop of it, on the cross. And we see that illustrated in the book of John as well. As John was a witness of Jesus at the cross. And the apostle John, he was there and he wrote down exactly how Jesus died. John chapter 19, verses 31 through 34. Now, it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jews did not want bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and bodies taken down. The soldiers, therefore, came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water spiritual water, the living water of Jesus being poured out from the cross. Every last drop poured out for you. What a great price. What a precious sacrifice. How precious and priceless this, this living water that Jesus has poured out for each one of you. This water that would be so pure, so refreshing, so satisfying for us was agonizing, was excruciating for Jesus. It cost him his very life. Are you thirsty today? Jesus knows your heart. He knows how thirsty you are. And with all of his love, at this great price of himself, Jesus endured the ultimate spiritual thirst in order to give you the true living water. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for giving us this time to look into your word. And as Jesus has done for the Samaritan woman, bringing her step by step by step, to recognize her spiritual thirst and to give her the true living water. You know our hearts as well, Lord, that we are thirsty. We don't even realize it. We're trying to fill ourselves with our own sense of entertainment, with our distractions, with our comfort. We try to fill ourselves with our, our reputation. Heavenly Father, we, we fill ourselves with so many things, and yet all we need is you, the true living water. We thank you that you've given us Jesus that he himself has poured himself out on the cross, every last drop, to satisfy our thirst. Lord, we come to you today. We give you all of our, our false waters, and we ask for that true living water. Satisfy us, Lord, at the, the cost of your own son, Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.